As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to season four of the Earth Keepers podcast. This season will be unlike any of the previous three, as I welcome a series of guests to join me in some thought-provoking discussions about where exactly humanity is headed and how can we collectively create the future we'd like to see. There's a lot of talk out there about how we're going to get to that future, to what some might call the new earth. Will it be love or will it be war? What will it take for humanity to finally release that which is no longer serving us to begin imagining something different? Tony Cade Bambara famously said that the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Author Sophie Strand, one of this season's guests, said, What if revolution involved sinking our hands into fresh loam and feeling for the threads of mycorrhizal fungi connecting plants and trees? What if Before we began to fight, we rooted back into our Earth-based pleasure. Hmm, that sounds like my kind of revolution. Humanity seems to be suspended in a place between stories. We're asking ourselves, what do we as a culture believe in now? And how should we proceed? In my vision, we begin by going to the woods, to the weather and the water, to the animals and the trees and the clouds, to the mushrooms and to the earth herself, because they already know the answers and are just waiting on us to ask. So in season four of the Earth Keepers podcast, I'll be speaking with artists and storytellers, researchers and myth makers about what they're envisioning as a potential future for humanity and the earth. Before we begin, If you're feeling inspired to go deeper and want to support the work it takes to bring this podcast to life, I'd love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. The Earth Tenders Academy is my online course and community where you can learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other Earth Tenders from around the world. Tap the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join us in this beautiful community. And now, on with the show. Earlier this year, I read a piece of writing on Ted Joya's Substack where he discussed the 14 signs that a society is missing a subculture. Now, Ted is a longtime music and culture critic and has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the creative world. Some of these signs that he mentioned include a sense of sameness in the creative world, static and repetitive themes, and alternative voices that are rarely heard and struggle to make an impact. 
He demonstrated this reality in our own culture in a series of tweets. I mean, of course, because if you want to have a chance of seeing or hearing any alternative voices in this day and age, you have to scour social media for them. Although that's getting harder and harder to do as well. But some of his examples of this lack of counterculture or sense of sameness is a screenshot of a New York City movie theater on a day where Doctor Strange was playing 70 times a day rather than offering a variety of movie selections. Or the headline that Ed Sheeran's 2017 song, Shape of You, finished as the top song in contemporary music super study three years in a row from 2020 to 2022. As in, consumers could find no other music they liked more over a five-year period. After reading this, I started paying attention to my own local radio station and realized that even the hits station plays maybe one new song out of every 10. So if you look around at popular media, it sure does start to feel like we're trapped in a loop or perhaps more accurately, have been lulled into a comfortable trance, never really noticing the passage of time or changes in our larger environment. On top of that, the major news outlets have all been condensed to a few billionaire corporations. U.S. commercial book publishing is down to four major companies, of course all owned by even bigger companies, and even Netflix's film library, a place where the choices can seem infinite, has been edited down to less than 20 movies per decade. If it feels like we're living in a bubble where we all hear the same music, read the same books and news stories, and are binging the same shows on Netflix, it's because we are. In a time when it seems like we've never had more information or entertainment at our fingertips than ever before, that information and entertainment has been carefully curated to exclude any alternative ideas. Any ideas that might hit a nerve? Any ideas that might make us think? We're just over here humming the shape of you and watching the same movies on repeat, living in our own version of Groundhog Day. And while you might find this an interesting story, you may be asking yourself, why the heck am I even talking about this? What exactly does any of this have to do with nature? Well, we can look to philosopher, ethnobotanist, and psychonaut Terence McKenna to make that connection. In his 1990 presentation called Opening the Doors of Creativity, he had this to say about nature and creativity. I thought I would talk just a little bit about my notion of creativity per se. What is it uh, uh, in and of itself? And when I think like that, of course, I cast my mind back to nature. Nature is the great visible engine of creativity against which all other creative efforts uh, are measured. And creativity in nature has a curious uh, distribution. It's something which accumulates through time. And though there's been, um, you know, many a uh, slipping back in this process, over very large spans of time, we can say that creativity is conserved, that the universe becomes more creative. And out of that state of creative fecundity, more creativity is manifest. 
so that from that point of view, the universe is almost what we would have to call an art-making machine, an engine for the production of ever more novel forms of connectedness, ever more exotic juxtapositions of disparate elements. Nature's creativity is obviously the wellspring of human creativity. We emerge out of nature almost, and this idea I think was fairly present close to the surface of the medieval mind, we emerge out of nature almost as its finest work of art. Yes, this world we live in is inherently creative. Each of us and everything in our environment is a work of art created by nature. And as part of nature ourselves, we use the example of nature's creativity to create even more. We, like the universe, are art-making machines. Now, what's even more interesting is that in this presentation, Terence goes on to explain that the prototypical figure for both the artist and the scientist is the shaman. He says, The shaman is the figure at the beginning of human history that unites the doctor, the scientist, and the artist into a single notion of caregiving and creativity. And I think that to whatever degree art over the past several centuries has wandered in the desert, it's because the shamanic function has been either suppressed or forgotten. Wow, that really hit me. The the absence of shamans in our more recent culture, that is, the mystical journeyer who goes into unseen worlds and then returns to tell the tale of those worlds, has removed the cultural permission to explore the irrational. As you know, shamans in all times and places uh, gain their power through relationships with helping spirits, which they sometimes call ancestors, sometimes call nature spirits. But somehow the acquisition of a relationship to a disincarnate intelligence is the precondition for authentic shamanism. Now, nowhere in our world do we have an institution like that that we do not consider pathological, except in the now very thinly spread tradition of the muse, that artists alone among human beings are given permission to talk in terms of my inspiration or a voice which told me to do this or uh, a vision that must be realized. The, the The thin line, the thin thread of shamanic descent into our profane world leads through the office of the artist. So how seriously then are we to take this, um, I'll call it an obligation, to follow the shamanic thread back into time? Well, I I think that it is uh, a matter of saving our own souls, that this is the real challenge. And so here we are, trapped in a kind of culture time loop, looking for the exit in our current culture. 
perhaps even with the urgent assignment to save our own souls. Now, throughout the season of the podcast, we'll be touching on this time and again. The role of the artist and the muse or the shaman and their helping spirits to lead us out of this perpetual time loop and usher in humanity's next age. And in the wise words of the Hopi elders in June of 2000, we are the ones we've been waiting for. You, me, we are the mystical journeyers traveling through time and space to bring back new ideas and perspectives to this time. One of this season's guests, songstress Maria Stark, wrote on a recent Instagram post about how she's bored with the apocalyptic drama and cynical messaging pervading our virtual spaces. I couldn't agree more. Let's stop obsessing over all the endings crumbling and dying around us. I think we can agree that they're not serving us. I hope that this season will nurture hope, inspiration, and creativity within you. Because there's a tipping point from the old to the new that we're finding our way to, and it might just be the return of the shamans, the healers, and the artists that will usher that new world into reality. And so we begin this season with my discussion with author, poet, creative strategist, and meme artist, James McRae. In addition to also being a fan of Terrence McKenna, James is the author of two books, Shit Your Ego Says and How to Laugh in Ironic Amusement During Your Existential Crisis. You may already be following his Instagram account, Words Are Vibrations, where he shares his brilliant poems and illustrations and memes. Yep, memes. James makes a compelling argument for why memes are the perfect form of art to disrupt this pervasive sameness and sidestep the algorithm overlords to inject new ideas into the collective consciousness and how we can use the technology of our time to bring new ideas to the world. I think you're really gonna love what he has to say about this. So without any further ado, here's my discussion with James McRae. All right, well, James, thank you for being here. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited for our conversation today. Hey, Amy, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here too. Yeah, well, let's just dive right into our conversation. I have heard you say or seen you write that, you know, you have more of a creative path and practice than what you might call a spiritual path or practice. And that really maybe they're kind of similar uh, in similar threads. So I'm just kind of curious if you can share more about your thoughts on that. Sure. Um. But it's important to know that like not just because a word is used to describe something doesn't mean it's definitively such. Um, in other words, what we call spirituality, I don't believe is such an, as an exclusive term that we make it out to be. So for example, every person alive is animated by the life force of spirit. We all have a spirit inside of our bodies that gives us life. And um, so just to be a human, to be alive is inherently spiritual, first and foremost. You don't have to do anything to be spiritual. You're already spiritual. And then if you look at creativity and what that entails, and creativity could be anything, right? It, 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 whether you're an artist, a painter, a poet, podcaster, um, maybe you host dinner parties, maybe you um, are a dancer, 
you know, anything that you do to bring something to life in the world, um, I think is inherently a spiritual act because when you, when you break down the creative process and like, look at what that actually is, it starts with the imagination or the, your intuition tuning into another dimension for all intents and purposes. It's a spiritual dimension. It's as similar to, you know, the philosopher Plato talked about the world of platonic ideals, which is this world that's not physical, but it's where the ideal of everything that's manifested on earth resides. The platonic ideal is a bit of a spiritual world, or the same could be said about um, the Hindu concept of Brahman and Maya, where Maya is the material world. And Brahman is this world of, of spirit that is sort of cast its shadow onto the physical world to, to create material reality. So imagination and intuition are our portals to other dimensions where we can pick up insights and visions that cannot be seen. They're not, they're, they don't exist in the tangible world. And then through the human intelligence, emotions, the physical body, our hands, our, our tongues, our vocal cords. We, we, we pull things from this invisible dimension and we manifest them into the, the, the physical world. This is what creativity is. Every time you create something, you're doing this. So I believe it is, it is the direct engagement and, and, and interaction with the spiritual world. And, in, and when I look at that, it's like, it's you can't get much more spiritual than that, you know. So personally, you know, I, I've I've studied a lot of religions and spiritual traditions, and um, have nothing against any of them. But for me personally, I've, I've always resonated with the path of the artist, and my heroes and my inspiration have been poets and artists and. And people who 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 do use creativity as a, a spiritual practice to bring some kind of a truth into the world um, through that spark of inspiration through the muse that is our connection to other worlds. So I just believe in um, a more inclusive definition of spirituality, and that doesn't have to mean just one thing. Uh, and for me personally, and I know for many others making art and being creative and, and and consuming art, reading books and listening to music. This can be just as spiritual as anything else. I love that. And, and I, it's such a good point in that so many creatives and artists and, you know, writers and poets, right. They, they're not always sure, like, where does this come from? Right. It's just tapping into the void and the potential and the, um, the place other than here to bring something here, whatever that looks like. So I love that idea. Yeah. People talk about this, like, where do ideas come from? Like no one can answer that question. Like they, people will say like, Oh, an idea popped into my head. What does that mean? It popped into your head. That's a magical thing. It's something. So just, so you're saying something wasn't there and then it popped into existence that's magic. That's that that's spiritual. That's in, that's that's uh, interacting with a higher power. So, like for me in my life as the, as a as a creator and just as a person, 
what I really try to do is just make myself a receiver of information. I know that like human intelligence and, and certainly my intelligence can only go so far. You know, the brain is very smart, but the brain is also very limited in its cognitive abilities. But I think when we allow ourselves to open up and become receivers for information from beyond the conscious mind, we actually tune into a higher intelligence. I love that. I love that. Well, and if anybody follows you on Instagram, they know that uh, in addition to being a, a writer and a poet, you're also a meme artist. And I want to talk about memes because I think obviously it's something that we've all become accustomed to and we know and we love and we share all on social media all of the time. But I think you share really thoughtfully about what memes are from a bigger perspective and from an artistic perspective. And I was hoping you could share a little bit more about that and, and also about your thoughts about how memes can really shift cultures and ideas within our culture. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, First of all, we have this idea of memes as like this piece of like social media content. And I think it's important to take a step back and look at what a meme actually is in like a classical sense. So the word meme was invented in 1976 by an evolutionary biologist named Richard Dawkins. And Dawkins created the word meme um, to make a comparison to how genes work he was a biologist so in biology genes will replicate and spread and there can be a gene mutation and when that gene mutation is advantageous that mutation will be the the strand that ends up spreading and replicating and then over time this is how evolution works over time the whole biological system can evolve and change based on the modifications within a single gene. So memes are to the world of culture and ideas what a gene is to biology. So Terence McKenna described a meme as the smallest unit of an idea. Mm. So it's essentially, it's the distillation. It's like a slow, it's like taking an idea or a whole concept and making like a slogan out of it or a catchphrase. Like if you look at, I think the, the 1960s or were such a potent time for cultural memes. And like a lot of the, the hippie movement was based on the spreading of memes. So you could have a, a catchphrase that's like, make love, not war. And then that can be placed on a t-shirt and on a sign and on a button and on a bumper sticker. And it becomes a meme that is promoting a certain cultural concept. And then that meme goes viral within the culture and it can become the prevailing paradigm of a culture. So memes are very important. They're, they're viral ideas that spread from one mind to others. So that's what kind of what memes are. And when I realized, when I kind of realized this, and then I looked at internet memes I realized, oh, so internet memes are are more than just like a silly cat or something. You can actually use internet memes to spread a message and to help certain messages spread and go viral in a culture. So basically, I started making memes. And um, 
you know, at that time, I, my background is I've been a, I've been a writer and a poet for pretty much my whole life. And I've also been a graphic designer and I actually went to college and studied graphic design at an art school. So I just happened to have a lot of the skills, you know, from the writing side and from the design side, and also just being um, a bit of like an internet nerd, you know, just kind of understanding the language of the internet and like kind of understanding the history of memes allowed me to leverage that format as a new platform for creative expression. So, and I, and I, and I think that when you look at the history of art, you know, there's all kinds of art and it's always changing from one generation to the next. And, and each generation is kind of using the common tools and technology of their time to make art. Like when Andy Warhol started silk screening canvases in the sixties, at first it wasn't considered art because he was just using a mechanical process to silk screen images from pop culture. It's like, well, he's just reproducing images like he's that's not art. And then, and, and, but then you can look back and be like, no, it was art. It really was like reflecting back the times through the tools and technology of the era. So for me, that's what memes are. It's like the common tools and technology of our time is smartphones, it's social media, it's internet. So I think for a, for a form of art to really be effective and, and, and relevant today, I think it's got to live in, the, in those worlds. And the meme happens to be the perfect um, art form for the internet age, where ne never before has it been so easy to copy and paste and to spread and for things to go viral. So when you look at um, the nature of memes is to spread and go viral, and the internet facilitates that better than any other platform in human history. So it's kind of the perfect art form for the age of social media. And um, so I've been doing that for a few years now. And um, I teach classes on how to make memes. And um, I've written an ebook on how to make memes. Um, and more and more people are kind of tapping into that as a, a medium of creative expression. So um, it's, 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 uh, it's exciting right now from an, from just from an art standpoint. Um, but also in that deeper way, I do think that memes have the power to affect change in culture. And um, I think we've seen that in the past and I think we're, we're seeing it again now. Well, it's interesting to think about because certainly, you know, I'm sure we've seen that maybe it's your meme. I don't know, <laughs> you know, memes that are like the world is burning and we're just over here sending memes to each other or, you know, uh, maybe, you know, the, the world is going to wake up based on just, you know, looking at looking at memes but i think you're right is that it is i it occurs to me that we as much as we have the opportunity to kind of go viral and spread ideas that actually there's a lot of kind of restrictive whether you want to call it corporate or algorithms or different kinds of things that i think can in some ways make it difficult for new ideas to kind of percolate to the surface and, and be found. And so I almost wonder, and that, you know, it's kind of my question about your meme school as well, is like, are memes the way to almost infiltrate, right, these <laughs> systems and, um, and find their way to um, people who need to receive, you know, or hear these ideas. And is that kind of part of what you're spreading through through meme school? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think that memes are in a way can be like a Trojan horse for ideas. And I and I realized that early on because I, I really started making memes in like the early early 2020, um, kind of in the early crazy moments of the um COVID period. Mm-hmm. And um, if you remember and and it still is this way, but um, I think even more so then it, it, it's uh, things became very polarized very quickly. Right. Um, there seemed to be like a, a bit of like a, a cultural divide of, of people who believed this versus people who believe that. And it, it just seemed to be a very, um, this is a, devi- a very divisive time. And, you know, one thing that you can do is you can write an essay on on something and have a, a an argument laid out in an essay, or you can give a lecture and you can stand up and, you know, on a soapbox and kind of preach your point of view. And when you do things like this, they tend to, for the most part, you're kind of preaching to the choir. The people who are predisposed to agree with you are going to continue to agree with you. People who are not are going to continue to not agree with you. And what I found is that memes, it's a little bit like that spoonful of sugar metaphor where like memes kind of hit you on the, in the gut rather than on the intellectual level. So whereas you might usually have some kind of like an intellectual barrier to believe something, um, a meme is almost like a song where it just hits you in the gut and like you might just kind of like laugh at it or react to it before you can get it your mind even has a chance to like shoot it down. So in a way, yes, memes kind of infiltrate the psyche. It's kind of like, yeah, putting out little spy planes and then having them go out into the internet and, and see where they can land. Um, So, yeah, I definitely think that you can communicate things and ideas with memes and especially like nuance. So you can communicate nuance and humor and, and, and absurdity in memes that you can't really communicate otherwise. And in that way, it, it reminds me of poetry. Like my background is in poetry and poetry is a language that it's almost the language of nuance <laughs> in, in a lot of ways where you're saying things, but you're speaking on the, you're speaking on the level of metaphor and you're kind of pointing at things and it's more of this poetic nature of language and memes are, are, are somewhat similar, or maybe you can say more than one thing at once, or there's a, the real message is in the interpretation. Um, so I feel like memes are almost like a modern form of poetry. Yeah. And you think about the ones that you screenshot or you save, or you're still thinking about later or you're <laughs> sharing with other people. I mean, certainly it's, um, I mean, you can't help but say that, especially the ones that are that are really well done and hit the mark are truly an, an art form. And that's that's unique, I think, to what's happening in social media right now. Yeah, they kind of give a voice to a certain idea or emotion. It's almost like an emoji, like an emoji. Like if you use this emoji, it kind of, it, it just, it represents this feeling. And And the best memes are kind of like, emojis where it's like oh this meme represents this feeling better than anything else so true well shifting gears a little bit to something that that you've shared about and i think is a thread that's starting to kind of come through this season as well is the idea of myths and their impact in 
our culture. And I think in, you know, the absence in some cases of a prevailing agreed upon myth, <laughs> where, where do you think we are in our culture as far as, uh, you know, what, what myths do we have, or are we um, still holding up? Yeah, it's really a great question. You know, I've been, I've been getting more and more into mythology over the past year. And um, in the past, I'd hear people talk about mythology and I kind of thought it was boring because it's usually just like, oh, they're talking about these fantasy characters from the past and like different, different gods and, and stories that were people shared hundreds or thousands of years ago. And I didn't find that particularly interesting or relevant to my life and the world around me. But in recently, I really discovered the true power and potency of memes and mythology um, and how myths are memes that go viral within a society. So, for example, I think myths, be, I think in order, in order for civilization to exist, you sort of need myths first, because myths are sort of the, 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 the most foundational agreements at the heart of a society. And um, these are things that people can kind of agree on, or it, it, it's like, it's almost like a moral um, tapestry that connects members of a tribe. Like these, these are, these are our stories and then, and, and, and their stories, but they actually are speaking to a higher truth. Like the thing about like people use methods right now almost as, as if it's to mean something that's false like oh that's just a myth that's false well myths are not false but they're also not literally true so historically speaking myths are non-literal truths so in other words it's kind of like back to this poetry and meme discussion where they speak the language of nuance i think that you you can almost tell the truth better sometimes using fiction because you can you can point your finger to a to to the truth in a way that is not so severe and one-sided once you once you try to get things once you try to explain things so exactly i think you end up getting it wrong because i think that's the, the language is inherently flawed and that's why I like the the one of my favorite spiritual texts is the the Tao Te Ching and one of the first lines in the Tao Te Ching is the Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. In other words, once you think once you, once you think you can so scientifically hone in on the truth, you actually lose the truth in the process. It's like you lose the forest for the trees kind of thing. So myths are a, a kind of a moral framework that point us towards the truth through non-literal stories. And um and they and 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 they kind of exist in the background as as this unspoken thread that ties us together. And I think that one of the problems in today's world is that our shared myths have been really unraveled. The, the tapestry has unraveled, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Like if you look at what are the myths that our society today is built on, if every society needs to be built on a myth, which I believe is true. What myths are our society built on? Meaning America, meaning kind of the Western world, Europe and America, when I say 
our society, because that's the society where I come from. Well, like it or not, the, 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 the foundational myths of our society is Christianity. Cause that is, that, that has kind of been the, um, the documents and the stories and the moral framework that informed Western, the, the Western civilization. And so whether, whether, whether or not you agree with Christianity or believe in it, that is a tapestry that has woven us together. Like, for example, if you even look at a, if you go to a courtroom in the United States, a courthouse, you'll most likely find the 10 commandments somewhere in that, in that courtroom. Um, or in God, we trust, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. On, on our money. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, and kind of the, the, the fracturing of this monolithic idea in Christianity has been happening for a long time now. I think it was in like 18, the 1880s that uh, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche proclaimed God is dead. And he was, you know, the very controversial statement. And what Nietzsche meant was not that there was some literal God in the sky that has, that has died, but that God is only as alive as, as our awareness that, that we put towards that idea. And we, as a, as, as a society have kind of turned our collective gaze away from this monolithic idea of God into all these other areas. Therefore, God is dead because we're no longer paying attention. And this was in the 1880s. And I think that's even more, much more true. Side note here. German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote God is Dead in his book, The Gay Science, in 1882, meaning that after the Enlightenment, which had pulled much of society out of the Dark Ages with the ideas that our universe was governed by physical laws, not by divine guidance, therefore God was no longer needed as a guidepost for morality, value, or order in the universe. Science could do that for us. Although he himself was an atheist, Nietzsche was concerned that the basic belief system of Western Europe was in jeopardy, that Christianity was a system, a whole view of things thought out together. And by breaking one main concept out of that system, that is, the faith in God, the entire system would break. So whichever myth or origin story a culture collectively believes in only works with that shared collective belief. And I think it's fair to say that our culture has lost any one collective belief, as Nietzsche predicted with his famous quote. Okay, back to James. Now, uh, I think we live in a very fractured society. And I think that even um, the university system today, the philosophy that is taught is postmodernism, which is inherently the philosophy of deconstruct deconstructivism. Um, meaning there is no grand narrative. There is no grand truth. Um, everything can be seen from a million perspectives and none of them are true and everything's relative. And not only do we no longer have kind of a shared myth to believe in, but we shouldn't have a shared myth to believe in. Like basically everything is wrong and it's just kind of tearing down the old systems. And I'm not saying that that's even bad. I'm really not saying that's bad because if you look at what were we doing? I mean, there were for, for hundreds of years, there were all kinds of wars being fought in the name of Christianity. 
And in the name of Christianity, people were suppressing um, women, you know, minorities. Like there was a lot of destruction and suppression and violence that was committed in the name of Christianity. So we're kind of right to, when, when, when our, when our myths are no longer living up to their ideals, we're kind of should question them. We, we, we kind of should pick them apart, but postmodernism alone does not a culture make. So now we just have all these people who are disconnected in our own reality tunnels and we're united only by our shared outrage and confusion. Um, and, and, and we're just kind of like, we don't know how to move forward. We don't know how to, how to proceed because we don't have a shared vision to believe in. So I think that's where we are right now. And I think that we have kind of forsaken our myths. And I, I think it's kind of too late to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Like, I don't think we can just go back to, you know, like make America great again, like go back to the values of the past. I don't think that's possible to do. I think that things move in cycles. And I think that includes mythology. I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's, there's cycles for all things in life, including that the, the myths that our societies are built upon. So if the old myths have been unraveled and deconstructed and essentially left for dead, I think it's um, imperative that we create new myths to inspire a better future. And I think that's the role of the artist. Um, and again, I use the term artist very broadly, but it's, 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 it's the job of the dreamer because there's a lot of work that we need to do to, to create a better world and a better society. And we really need to build new systems. We need to build more sustainable, inclusive systems. But before we can build something, we need to have a plan. Before we can have a plan, we need to have a vision or a dream. So everyone has a different role along that spectrum. But before we, we can start building, we need to know what exactly are we building? We need a plan. Well, what what's what are we planning? What is the what is the what is the vision? So all everything new begins in the imagination. So I think that's the role of the artist, the poet, uh, the meme maker, and the dreamer is to plant new memes into the collective consciousness. Memes are seeds that you plant in the collective consciousness. And they eventually take root and then they grow into the sturdy branches of reality. Um, so that's what I try to do with my work is just plant seeds. And every meme that I make, every book that I write, every poem that I write, I'm planting little seeds in the collective consciousness. And I just hope that if I, if I plant enough seeds and, and other people plant enough seeds, you know, we don't need to execute on the, uh, the new world tomorrow. But if we get the wheels moving in the, in the right direction. And we give, we plant enough little, little dreams. One of them will take root and one of them will grow. Um, so I think that's why right now is such an important time for art and for creativity. Cause I actually think it is the, be, the beginning of the new world. I agree. And I think, you know, it's interesting while you're kind of talking about some of the, the myth and where we came from, it occurred to me that you know, the founding fathers, at least here in the United States, certainly they had their vision and their dreams. And certainly 
I agree, Christianity is, has been there and has been, you know, a part of our culture as it's been growing. But I also think, whether intentionally or unintentionally, this idea that everyone can practice their own religion, right, which was one of the tenets, kind of like that was that idea removed that myth connection, right, that by just by the basis of what it was kind of drove people into their own little groups of beliefs in our country that is where we've gotten to now. And now we're looking for exactly, as you say, humans are just wired for looking for that myth and that meaning. And so now we're looking for it in whatever, wherever, right? Science or reason or corporations or <laughs> what, whoever it is that's going to make meaning for us because we can't find that. And so uh, I love the idea of really artists kind of leading us into that next phase and having those ideas and planting those seeds that collectively can start to grow something new, even if no one person has the one idea, which I don't think is how we would expect it to unfold anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's just so important to trust the uncertainty of the journey because you know i think that in or in order for us to get to the next phase of society i think that we have to let go of a lot of the um just a lot of the assumptions and a lot of the the things that we take for granted you know i, I don't know what that is you know some people want to replace the constitution some people want to um replace the government like again, like I don't have the answers. I'm not the one building it. I'm the one that's like putting out seeds of, of memes and, and, and visions. Right. Um, but I, but I do think we need to be comfortable letting go of the known in order to move into a greater unknown. Um, which isn't easy. And there's a lot of resistance. And I think a lot of the friction in society today is, um, you know, half the people are trying to burn down the past and pretend just burn it down and destroy it. And, um, because of, because of, you know, everything, all the bad things the past is responsible for. And I understand that, you know, motivation. Um, and then half, half the country, half of the world is saying, no, these are our values. Like how can we tear down our traditional values because they've actually got us as far where we, where we are today. Because let's not forget, like, we are living, all things considered, most people are living in a pretty good world compared to how it, how it could be. Things are, you know, pretty organized, you know, pretty safe, um, always can get better. But it's really, I can understand why you would want to be very protective of the traditions and values that that you hold dear and that have allowed us and, and have have allowed many people to flourish. Um, but when those same values that have allowed some people to flourish, but have also, you know, imprisoned many others and, um, you know, been less than ideal for many others, we do need to question whether they are the right ideals or, or whether they maybe have um, spread far enough to be effective for the, the most number of people. Um, so I do think we are going through a period of change and I don't think it's about burning down all of the past, 
but I, it's also not about preserving all of the past. I think there needs to be a, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Buddhism and in Buddhism, we speak about the middle way. So I do think there is a middle way between extremes, between burning down the past and between going back to the past. You know, I think that there are certain principles that we can preserve as we progress forward into the future. And that that's going to take compromise. That's going to take discussion, debate. You know, you mentioned the founding fathers. The founding fathers in America were not all on the same page. They weren't just a bunch of buddies that all saw things the same way. You know, there was a lot of disagreements in the founding of America. There was a lot of debate, a lot of a lot of arguing. You know, there was a, there was fighting in you know in, in, in when it came to putting together together the Constitution. So, I think we need to be, need to be prepared to do that to really get on the same page. And that's um, um, you can't have it all your way. I think right now people want to have have it all their way. And this is how I want things to be. And um, this is the way it should be. But then someone on the, on the other side says, no, I want it all this way. And this is the way it should be. There's going to have to be compromises. There's going to have to be a, um, a unification of some sort. Um, and I hope we can get there without some kind of, uh, you know, level of devastation where we have no other choice. Like, <laughs> I think there's a there's a line from Morrissey in a, in a Smith song that says, if it's not love, then it's the bomb that will bring us together. So it's like, we're coming together at some point either way. Um, but I hope we can get there through love and, and, and not through uh, war. Ask me, ask me, ask me, ask me, ask me, ask me, because if it's not love, then it's the bomb, the bomb. Yeah, and I'm I'm a gardener, so between those two extremes, I like to think of the compost pile, right? <laughs> that somewhere in the middle we have this compost pile that might be full of some weeds that you pulled out, but it might also be you know, you might also toss in the zucchini that was perfectly good, but got a little too large and the prunings from last year's flowers and the, right, you put it, everything goes in, but out of the compost comes the soil that, you know, we grow something new from. And I guess that's in my mind, you know, I'm, I'm with you rather than <laughs> fighting a war. It would be nice if we were able to uh, compost it and and grow something new. Totally. Throw it all in there. <laughs> Throw it all in there yeah. and let it all grow together into something new. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a, a, an idea, a vision somewhat for the uh, what, what the new earth might be, um, but you're calling it the new renaissance. Tell us a little bit about where that came from, what that is. Yeah, well, okay. Um so yeah, I I've, I've been I've been kind of speaking on a, a a subject called the new renaissance and 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 I think that's um that's the vision I have for the new world which is which is like I said it's kind of a return to creativity in order to plant those visions that can then become reality. And I think the renaissance is an important period of time to look at and a relevant one because before the Renaissance was the Dark Ages, 
and this was a, a kind of a, a bad time for humanity. It was like the Catholic church was like ruled supreme. Um, there was, there was plagues and famines and witches were being burned. It was just like the dark ages were, they're called the dark ages for a reason. This was not a pretty time. And how did we get out of the dark ages? I think it's an important question to ask. How did we go from the dark ages to the Renaissance? And my overly simplified explanation for that is that it was the artists and the philosophers who looked back into history at the last period where it was flourishing, which was essentially, well, they looked back to ancient Greece to be inspired by the idealism of that classical period where they where people you know that was the creation of democracy and you know the arts were flourishing um so it was the artists and the philosophers that took inspiration from ancient greece and they brought those ideals forward into the present and that sparked the renaissance which was a return to science and a return to art and to beauty and for to philosophical debate which led to the um the period known as the enlightenment and um you know, the enlightenment is problematic in its own way because it's kind of like this reliance on reason above all else. But things are both good and bad, right? Because at the time, the enlightenment got us out of a lot of like of the superstitions of the dark ages, which was good. It was a positive step for humanity. So it was by looking to the past and taking the inspiration and bringing those ideals to life in the present that led to the Renaissance. And I think. That's what we need now. And, and one of my favorite thinkers is Terrence McKenna. And what he said is the, the problems we're facing today are so severe that instead of looking back to ancient Greece, we need to look back even further. Because McKenna talked about the biggest problem in the world today, or, or actually all of the problems in the world today, they all come back to the same idea called the ego dominator society. And right now, people throw around words like, oh, the patriarchy or colonialism or white supremacy. And all of these terms are just different um, aspects of the ego dominator society. So it's beyond race, it's beyond gender, et cetera. It is this, it's almost like a mind virus that's been planted in society that causes us to. Um, loot and pillage and seek gain for ourselves at the expense of others. And McKenna pointed out that it was about 10,000 years ago during the transition from hunters, hunter gatherer societies into um, agriculture that this is where the eco-dominator society was born. And essentially because there's nothing wrong with agriculture, there's nothing wrong with farming, but things often have like a, an unexpected consequence. And with agriculture, for the first time, people were no longer nomadic. People could own land and people could hoard resources. So you could suddenly, suddenly uh, what was a kind of a more communal living became a hierarchy. Um, with the haves and the have-nots. 
And this was 10,000 years ago. And you play that out over 10,000 years and you can see how severe that hierarchy has gotten between the haves and the have-nots. So McKenna pointed out that in order to move beyond the ego-dominator society, we need to look back to a period in history prior to the birth of the ego-dominator society, which was hunter-gatherers. So in other words, the new Renaissance, instead of being inspired by ancient Greece, is going to be inspired by the Paleolithic period with the, the tribal people uh, who are hunter-gatherers. So in other words, indigenous tribes, um, people who lived in community, you know, play, um, societies that worshipped the goddess just as much as the god. And those, 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 are, those, are, those are equal. Um, and, and a connection to nature and, um, you know, having sustainable lifestyles and working together as a community. Um, so I think taking, for me, the new Renaissance is about taking the forgotten principles of, the, of, of, of ancient history, in particular, indigenous cultures and hunter gatherers, and the same way that they did in the Renaissance, bring those principles forward into the present. Cause I still believe in technology. I don't, I don't think we're going to go back to actually, you know, the stone age. I think we need to merge those principles with the present, with, you know, technology in order to find a way to move forward. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that is the the place that a lot of us are at is seeing the benefit of some of those, you know, communal living and um, type ways that go back to that time and saying, but, but we have this culture right now and we have the technology and we have, and, and probably nobody's going to drop that and go away and go back to living in the woods. Well, maybe some people, but <laughs> um what are those elements that you see as kind of the merging of the two? What do you think is uh, the necessary pieces in creating a new Renaissance? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the question, you know, and 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 I can throw out my ideas and it's really it's it's really just like a, it's a it's a it's a whole net that I want other people to add their ideas to as well. Right. Because we need. um that's part of it is not having one person having all the answers. It's about, well, here's, here's a thought experiment. What do you guys have? You know, let's play around with this idea. Um, so for me, there's a lot of things. I mean, I think that um, one of them is, um, you know, if you look, you just like, look, look back at what, what, what is different now compared to, you know, an ancient history. So for example, I think that, Again, back to uh, Taoism and and the Tao Te Ching, I think that the um, the universe, the the nature of the universe is an equal balance of yin and yang, and that's masculine and feminine. And I think that um, for many centuries, society has been too reliant on the yang, which is the masculine energy, which is the um, the forceful nature, um, you know to to go out and do things or, or to take things and to uh, exert force. Whereas the yin is more the feminine, receptive, um, intuitive side that I think artists 
have always been connected to. But I think that we really need to restore yin to the equal level of yang in our society. So in other words, like there's a lot of talk about men and women and equity and having the, an equal number of women in powerful, powerful positions as men and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But I think that if we're, the point is not to just insert women or minorities into the same dominator hierarchy and have them be interchangeable pieces that men were playing in the same power structure. That's not the, that's not the answer. The answer is to awaken the yin across all facets of society. So we're using our intuition to make decisions, you know, and in, in ancient societies before a culture could go to war, um, there would be something called like a council of grandmothers and they would need to be consulted before going to war. So they could see, is this just uh, a, a warrior or a king who's um, power tripping right now and <laughs> just wants to, you know, or is it, is this a truly noble cause? So I just think we need to, 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 to slow down and stop thinking we know everything and, um, and just be willing to listen a little bit more. So that's one of the ideas that I have. And also, you know, I, 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 I think that we, I think we should have more technology and more nature, you know, and I think we need cleaner technology where we can be in nature and still be using technology. I don't think nature and technology are in opposition to each other. Um, I think we need more of both. I think that more technology can actually take a, take a strain off of nature in terms of our, you know, re, our reliance on resources and um, just is eating up the resources of the land. The more we can do things virtually, I think that actually alleviates some of the stress we're putting on the earth. Um, and, and, and I think even when you look at some of the ad advancements happening in crypto and blockchain, um, a lot of these actually do go back to, you know, ancient principles, um, whether it's like having like a decentralized network or like, you know, blockchain allows us to have these certain trust factors in place and these checks and balances that allow for a more fair exchange of information. Um, so I think that when blockchain infiltrates things like the legal system, um, our voting process, um, our corporate structures, that we can actually, um, that, will, that, that will actually help us move towards a, a more decentralized world. So I think ironically, our, our technology is waking up to the same level of awareness that we are at this period in time um, to restore some of these principles. Um, so those are some of the ideas I have. And I mean, just for anyone who's listening listening to this, I would just encourage them to think of their own. Like, I think it's, um, we need to stop looking at other people and other leaders to have all the answers. And like, we all need to contribute. Like, we all need to, 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 to cast our memes into the cosmos uh, to see, you know, what goes viral and to see, you know, which meme wins. Um, so for me, it's very participatory. And um, I would encourage everyone to, you know, apply 
how they think the world could be better and to live it out and to be a an, an embodiment of their own ideals and the me, and the memes that they want to cast into the world. Yeah, and it's interesting because I get messages from people all the time, right, who are getting downloads, right, or as we say, those ideas that pop into your head, whatever it is about things that they think they know nothing about, right? So they're like, I, I'm getting these ideas about technology for clean water, but I don't have a degree in that, or I don't know anything about that, or what am I supposed to do with that? And so I guess from that perspective, what kind of encouragement would you have for people who are kind of in that space of like sitting on ideas or art or writing or whatever it might be to really be sharing that whatever whatever stage it's in or however it seems to be coming through? So I think it's important to remember that we all have a different dharma. Like I'm good at things that you're not good at you're good at things that I'm not good at. So I think it's really important at this time for everyone to find their dharma, to find what is the song that only they can sing? What is the message that they have to deliver? And to do that, I think it's just important to really tune into your own subconscious, like whether that's through meditation, just through inner exploration to see why am I here? What is the message that's trying to come out of me? You know, don't force it because it's trendy. Don't be like, oh, I'm supposed to do this because it's trendy or, you know, James makes memes. So I have to make memes. Not everyone's going to make memes. Like maybe your words are your memes. Maybe your actions are your memes, right? So find what only you can do and apply yourself to it and know that you're here for a purpose and your voice matters. And I used to be more afraid to put myself out there. And then you just got to, get your feet wet, you know, go out a little bit beyond the shore, you know, wade in the water. And eventually, you know, you can dunk your head underwater and you'll just, it'll get easier and easier and easier. You know, there was a time when sitting here and doing a podcast would have been terrifying for me, you know, and now I do it all the time. So everyone who's here for a purpose, everyone has a Dharma and your life will be so much more fulfilling when you actualize that dharma and make your inner purpose public. So I would encourage everyone to do that, whatever that means to you. Yeah, and in my experience, and, and probably yours too, it's when you put yourself out there that you find other people that can kind of add on or contribute or appreciate or whatever the case may be that you would never find if everything just stayed in your notebook or, uh, you know, just in your own head. Oh, no question. I've, you know, the, yeah, the further you put yourself out there and express yourself authentically, um, the more you'll find people that really resonate. And maybe you'll lose a few friends that weren't your real friends anyway, you know, but in doing so, you'll find a community that's, you know, a mutually supportive community. So I know that's happened to me since I've started putting myself out there. So yeah, I know that definitely can happen. Well, I'd like you to read your poem before we go, but I do want to ask before we do that, if you could share just a little bit about the Sunflower Club, because I think uh, that's probably already happening in some of the communities that um, the listeners are in. And if not, it may spark something for somebody to start something similar in their community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sunflower club is really my way of actualizing the new Renaissance. 
And that's essentially um, giving a voice to creativity where there was not a voice previously. Like, I think that there is a creative imbalance in the world. There are like a few published authors and professional artists who are given the green light to be creative. And then everyone else doesn't really have an outlet for creative expression. Even though like most people I know, they have a notebook and they write in a notebook and they write, they might write some reflections or a diary entry or a poem, but then it just gets locked away in that notebook and no one ever sees it. No one ever hears it. It just kind of, the notebook is where their ideas go to die. And that's okay too. I mean, just getting it out of your system and getting it out onto the page, there's something healing about that. I think creativity is there's something that's like cleansing about it. It's like a purge. You get it out of your system. And when you get it onto the page, um, there's a release that happens. But there's even a bigger release that happens when you share that in public. Um, So Sunflower Club is a creativity ceremony that I've developed. And it's not about being the best at creativity. It's not a talent show. Um, everyone's welcome to share. And it's not about being good at creativity. It's about creativity being good for you. So it's really about creativity as a modality for healing and transformation. Um, And I host Sun and Flower Club events where I live here in Austin. And I've also put together a guidebook on how to start your own Sunflower Club. So now we're seeing sunflower clubs kind of sprout up all around the world where people are hosting their own. So my real vision is to have a sunflower clubs in every city and and town across the world so we can bring creative expression um, to places where it wouldn't be otherwise and to give everyone that outlet to heal themselves through creativity. Beautiful. And I have no doubt that there will be people who will say that's, that's what's missing in my community. And (laughs) we need to do that. So thank you for sharing that with, with us and with your idea with the world as well. So, well, you have a beautiful poem that if I remember right is entitled the new earth, a new earth. And I would love it if you would share it with us. Yeah, of course. So this poem is called A New Earth. And I wrote this in, I think, 2021, um, at a time when the world felt especially dark and heavy. And uh, this poem just came through me one morning. Um, just like it just flew through. I didn't even plan to write it. It just started coming through and I just had to, had to get it down. And um, my favorite thing about this poem, it's only one sentence, although it's a r- rather long sentence. But grammatically speaking, it is only a sentence. And this is sort of my vision for a new earth. Not exactly, but again, just to kind of inspire um, other ideas. A new earth. When the parasites have been removed and the oceans have been clean and the virus of fear of each other and ourselves has been blessed and transmuted by the great Amazonian grandmothers. And we have shed the dead skin of history and the hyper-rational disembodied laws have been replaced by the organic regenerative decrees of nature. And we finally embraced our own magic and divinity and made peace with Father Death. And there's not an ounce of judgment left because we understand that judgment of another is judgment of the self. And every McDonald's has been turned into a garden. 
and every shopping mall converted into a place of worship. And we celebrate each spring equinox by electing a single yellow daisy as president of the world in a symbolic gesture of gentleness and the futility of control. Then we shall wake up in the dewy grass of the new dawn and see our own reflections in the faces of each other and in the sunlight above. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I hope that this has inspired people to find their, their own vision, their own creativity and bring that out and share that into the world in service of whatever we are collectively creating next. But I'm sure that people will want to find and connect with you. So can you let us know where uh, we can find you in the world? Yeah, um, my Instagram is at words are vibrations. Um, and the link in my bio, you can check out my books. You can listen to my podcast. You can take one of my classes. Um, my podcast is called Sunflower Club. Um, my website is jamesmccray.com. And um, all the good stuff is at any of those links. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your vision with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Sending my deepest gratitude to James for this discussion. And I hope it sparked something in you to be inspired by the example of the natural world to become an art-making machine. Whether you make memes, write poetry, dance, sing, paint, or simply share your vision with your own community about what the future could look like, remember that you're planting seeds of a new consciousness. If you enjoyed this episode and think these ideas are worth spreading, I hope you'll share it with others. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. I'll see you back here next week. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.